Welcome to the Rick Reed Sermon Podcast. Rick serves as the president of Heritage College and Seminary, where he has the joy of preaching God's Word and training the next generation of preachers. The sermons on this podcast are taken from Dr. Reed's preaching ministry in churches, conferences, and at chapel services at Heritage. You know, most people would consider a good night's sleep a major blessing, right? Tracy just sang about kind of helping me to sleep. And most people would consider a good night's sleep a major blessing. And I'm talking about a good night's sleep, one of those nights when you fall into bed and you quickly and easily drift off into a relaxed and restful sleep and you don't wake up till morning. Most people would say that is a major blessing. A whole lot of other people would say that is a minor miracle if I ever get one of those. In fact, I was reading recently a report done by Stats Canada on a survey that, that kind of studied the sleep patterns of Canadians. And what this study found is that 25% of Canadians regularly and repeatedly have a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep. Like one out of four of us is having a hard time getting to sleep or staying asleep. Now, some of the reason for that is physiological. Some of that is physical. There are physical maladies that keep us from sleeping. But the study found that a major portion of sleep problems are not physical. They're actually more emotional. They're related to stress. In fact, 40% of those who struggle getting to sleep said that their problem is linked to too much stress. Now, I'm guessing you didn't need a report from Stats Canada to figure that one out, right? Probably all of us know that when you are stressed, it's harder to sleep. I mean, who among us here, who among us doesn't know what it's like to go to bed and to lie there wide awake? You're unable to shut off your mind, to slow down your heart. And so you lie there and you fitfully kind of turn from side to side and, and, you, and you process a problem that's on your mind and you go over it again and again and again and you look at the clock and you try not to look at the clock and it just, it goes like that. And if that happens night after night after night for a while, then you start dreading sundown because you know it's going to be another fight. It's a fight to sleep. And if you're married to someone who's struggling with sleep, you know that that's kind of part of your world too. And it can produce anxiety and it can be, it can be terribly frustrating and frightening. Well, this morning we're going to hear from a man who knew all about some sleepless nights. This was a guy who pulled some all-nighters. Some all-nighters he pulled because he was watching to protect his own life. Some all-nighters he had was because he was worrying about problems that he faced. Some all-nighters that he had was because he was actually weeping, weeping in grief throughout the evening, throughout the night. The man I'm talking about is David, King David, a man who lived with king-sized stress. And sometimes those stressors and problems cost him dearly when it came to trying to sleep. But today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that David wrote where he tells us of a time in his life when he faced a host of problems. He says he was surrounded by problems on every side. And yet he says on this particular time, he laid down and he went to sleep. And he woke up the next morning filled with new courage and freshness. He was ready to take on the day. 
and he tells us what made the difference. Why on this night he could sleep. And we're going to look at that to see if we can't learn some things that would help us. How we could follow his example in moving towards getting a, you know, a good night's sleep when life is not going well. How to sleep well when life isn't well. How do you move towards that? What does that look like? Well, this morning, we're going to see that as we look at a psalm that David wrote. This summer, we've been going through a number of psalms in the Psalter, looked at all different kinds. And today, we come to a very personal psalm written by King David that I'm entitling, A Song for a Good Night's Sleep. And it's found in Psalm number three. So would you take a Bible and join me in the third psalm, Psalm number three? If you don't have a Bible with you, hopefully there's one within arms arm's reach uh, there in the racks in front of you. Please grab one of those, and uh, Psalms is best found by kind of opening to the middle of your Bible, and that'll take you pretty close to Psalms one way or the other. Today, we're in Psalm 3. It's a short psalm, a personal psalm, and it's a song about a good night's sleep. So I'm going to pray for us. By the way, I'm going to pray that you don't get your good night's sleep in the next 40 minutes, okay? (laughs) Like, I'm hoping you'll stay awake for a little while here. But then tonight, you know, tonight, because of our time together, you'll just feel a little bit more like, okay, I can face the evening. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at it together. Father, uh, this morning as we sit here, you know us so well that you know, as the psalmist said, when I rise up and when I lie down. And you know that some of us, when we lie down, don't lie peacefully or restfully. And many nights uh, are difficult nights. Some of us, that's current reality. Some of it, we can think back on times in our life when we've had stretches of sleeplessness, when the stressors of life has somehow just invaded our soul and we couldn't turn it off. And I'm asking that today, as we look at your word, you would speak truth into that part of our soul so that we could find rest in you. Thank you for David's honesty. Thank you for the insight and inspiration that you gave him. Thank you that your word is still true thousands of years after David first penned this. So teach us today, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 3 actually breaks down nicely into three sections. You could say that there are three stanzas of this song. Three stanzas. Uh, The first one would be verses 1 and 2. And then the second section or stanza would be verses 3 and 4. And then the final stanza is twice as long. It covers four verses, verses five through eight. Each one of those sections or stanzas ends with the word selah. Do you see that at the end of verse two? It ends and says selah. And then look at the end of verse four, selah. And then finally, the last word in the psalm, selah. If you've been here this summer, you might recall that I mentioned that selah Uh, is a word Hebrew scholars aren't 100% clear on it, but they think it was a cue to the instrumentalists and to the congregation. A cue to the instrumentalists to keep playing and for the congregation to take a pause, to be silent, to reflect. It's almost like a time to just drink in and think about what's just happened. So David does that. He has uh, three stanzas to his song, and after each one, he asks us to pause to think, to reflect, to process that in God's presence. The first stanza, verses 1 and 2, feels like a lament. We looked at a lament psalm earlier this summer. A lament is where someone pours out their complaint to God. They're just very honest and saying, God, this is how my life is. It's not good. I'm not in a good place. 
And that's the way it is in the first stanza. David's talking about a time when troubles surround you. That really is the theme of the opening stanza or section. It's about when troubles surround you. David's going to say, okay, let's talk about a time when troubles surround you. Look what he says, verse 1. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. David writes feeling surrounded by troubles, by many troubles. In fact, the word many is repeated three times in those two verses. Look at it. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up? Many are saying of me. A little tip is when you're reading Hebrew poetry or really almost any section of scripture, when the author repeats a word, that's often a signal he wants you to get that word. And David's big word here in the opening section is many. He's saying, I got many problems. I got many people against me. I got many people rising up against me. I got many naysayers, people who are speaking words that pull me down, saying, God's not going to help you. I'm surrounded by troubles. You say, well, what kind of troubles were you surrounded with, David? Well, the, uh, the title of the psalm actually indicates the backstory for the psalm. You see there, look up at where it says Psalm 3. Then right underneath it is what's called the superscription or the title. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So the backstory for this psalm is David is on the run from his son Absalom. Absalom had actually pulled off a coup against his father, King David, had it taken over the palace, and David is now fleeing from his son. He's running from his own son. That's the backstory. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 15 to 18, and I would encourage you to read it sometime. That's, that's where you can read about what happened, this, this period in David's life, 2 Samuel 15 to 18. I got to tell you that reading it is painful. It is painful to read, especially if you're a parent. As you think about the dynamics of what was going on, It's painful to read. It must have been excruciating for David to live. I mean, here's his own son, Absalom. Absalom was his third-born son. By all accounts, Absalom was handsome. He was a striking man. He was a natural leader. He rallied people to him easily. He was charming. He was shrewd. 2 Samuel tells us that he used his charm and he used his savvy to kind of uh, curry the favor of people. He made political promises to people who were coming to Jerusalem, kind of saying, you know, if I were king, things wouldn't be handled so poorly in your case. And and 2 Samuel 15 verse 6 says, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he has this subversive thing going on. He begins to curry people's favor. And when he senses he has enough support, He goes to the city of Hebron, and he gathers several hundred people, one of whom is a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel is actually a big player in this whole story. Ahithophel was one of David's chief advisors, part of his think tank, part of his elite advisory corps. And Ahithophel had been advising David, but when Absalom went to Hebron, Ahithophel went with him. Ahithophel changed sides. He turned traitor on David and went with Absalom. So they go to Hebron, the city where David had been crowned as king, and there Absalom has himself coronated as king. There's this coronation. He's proclaimed the new king of Israel. 
Well, word quickly gets back to the palace in Jerusalem. And David hears what's going on. And he knows that it's, it's game over for him. He senses he, David is an experienced leader. And he senses that the, the winds have shifted. The mood has changed. And Absalom has the hearts of the people. So David gathers up a few of his loyal people, the ones that are still sticking with him, some military and some uh, personal and family. And David flees from Jerusalem, heading east up the Mount of Olives, leaving town. And as he leaves, his troubles get worse. On the Mount of Olives, we're told that someone comes to him with some more bad news. And they say, David, David, Mephibosheth has also turned against you. Now, Mephibosheth was like a son to David. Mephibosheth was actually this only surviving son of David's best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan had been killed, and David was trying to show kindness to Jonathan's family, and he found Mephibosheth, who had been crippled through a fall when he was a baby, and David took him in and treated him like his own son. For Jonathan's sake, David helped raise this boy, and now he's told Mephibosheth turned against you too. No wonder David says in verse 1 of our psalm, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? David's thinking, it's like everyone, my family, my friends, my nation. And then to make matters worse, as he's going over the Mount of Olives, another man comes up and begins to taunt him. I mean, don't you like that? When you're already just discouraged and down, and then somebody comes up with hurling hurtful words. We're told that a man named Shimei, who was from Saul's clan, Saul was the previous king, a man named Shimei comes up, and get this, he begins to pick up handfuls of dust and gravel, and he throws them at David, the king. He's throwing, he's showering him with dirt, and he's screaming at him. He's saying, get out, you man of bloodshed, get out. And then he says this, the Lord is repaying you for what you did to Saul. Now, David did nothing to Saul. David could have killed Saul multiple times. He never did. But here's this guy saying, the Lord is repaying you for what you did to Saul. And then he says, the Lord is handing over your kingdom to Absalom. No wonder uh, David is saying in verse 2, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Here's this guy screaming at him as he's walking out of town saying, God has turned against you. God is giving your kingdom to your son. We're told that that first night as David flees the palace, goes over the Mount of Olives, he comes to his destination. 2 Samuel 16, verse 14 says, David arrived exhausted. That's the word it's used, exhausted. He is discouraged. He is exhausted. It's dark, and life seems dark. Now, can you empathize with David at all? I mean, is there there any part of his story that you would say, I've lived part of that story before? Maybe you've gone through a time when someone or maybe multiple people who you thought were close to you suddenly seem to turn against you, change sides. They they seem to used to be trying to help you. Now it seems like they're pulling you down. They break your trust. They break your heart. And maybe you feel kind of pushed out, pushed out of a place that you used to enjoy, a place that you thought God had given you, a place where you felt like it was, it was your place. And now suddenly you're getting wedged out by somebody else. And on top of that, there are people whispering or maybe even shouting at you words that discourage you. 
Essentially saying, God has left you. This is hopeless. You're not getting out of this one. Maybe God has given you what you deserve. So in the midst of all of this, you end up like David, exhausted and discouraged. It's interesting, the end of that first section ends with the word Selah. Right at the end of this, Selah. It's almost like David is saying, let's pause here and enter into that. And I want to do that this morning. Maybe you are in the middle of one of those times when troubles surround you. Or certainly you can remember a time when they did. Why don't we all just take a moment and do what the scripture says. Have a Selah moment. David's going to come and play a little bit instrumentally. And I just want to give you a time to pause and and do what David did. You notice verse 1, David pours this out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, why don't you talk to God about a time present or past when troubles surround you? Can we do that? Just pour out your heart to him for a moment. Let's pray. What do you do when you find trouble surrounding you? What do you do at those times? Well, David tells you what he did in verses 3 and 4 in the second section of our psalm, the second stanza. He tells you what he did. Let me read them, verse 3 and 4. He says, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud. And he answers me from his holy hill, Selah. See what David says he did? He says, I cried out to the Lord. To the Lord, I cried aloud. And that's what David says to do when troubles surround you. See, when troubles surround you, David is saying this. When troubles surround you, call on the God who sustains you. That's what, that's what he's, he's saying. Here's what you do. When troubles surround you, call on the God who sustains you. Call out to him. Verse 4, to the Lord I cried aloud. He calls on the God who sustains him. If you read the Psalms, you'll find that idea of calling on the Lord or calling on the name of the Lord repeated multiple times. A few weeks back, we looked at Psalm 116, which said, when life knocks you down, call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. We say, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think it means that you not only call on the Lord for help, you do something else. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 shows you that when you call on the name of the Lord, you rehearse what you know to be true about God. You rehearse what you know to be true about him. David's calling out, and look what he says, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You bestow glory on me, and you lift up my head. So he's calling on the name of the Lord, and he's rehearsing what he knows to be true about God. He begins by saying, Lord, you are a shield around me. David knew all about shields. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. 
And the word for shield here is a word that just speaks of the shield that a soldier would carry. It kind of was a small circular or at least rectangular thing, and they would hold it to protect the, them in the front. And David says to God, God, you are a shield. But did you notice verse 3 says, you are a shield around me. Normally, a shield just protects you in the front, keeps your vital organs safe. But David says, you're a different kind of shield to me, God. You're a shield around me which is significant because he is feeling surrounded by troubles. And he says, Lord, the troubles are surrounding me, but you are a shield around me. And then he goes on to say, and God, that's not only true. You're a shield around me and you bestow glory on me. You bestow glory. You are the glorious one and you bestow glory on me. That's significant because David was leaving Jerusalem feeling ashamed, and feeling humiliated, not glorious at all, was he? This was not a king marching out in glory. This was a king running for his life. In fact, listen to uh, this little passage from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, tells you how David left the city. 2 Samuel 15, 30 says, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. You get the picture? David's fleeing the palace and as he, as he goes up the Mount of Olives, he's just weeping and he's barefoot. Is that you think he didn't have time to get his shoes? So, no, no, that's not it. This was, a, this was a sign of mourning. He was going around like a mourner and he had his head covered, a way of just kind of saying, I'm in disgrace. And so he says, God, look, I'm in disgrace. My own son's trying to kill me. I'm being chased out like some kind of a vagabond or criminal. But God, you bestow glory on me. And then he says in verse 3, and lift up my head. Lift up my head. Uh, that, that metaphor or idiom has at least a couple meanings. To lift up your head. I mean, you, you get the picture of one of them. It's when we're discouraged, what do we do with our heads, right? Our heads hang down. And so to lift up our head is to help you get your chin up. No, say, hey, keep your chin up. Well, I can't. My head's hanging down. He says, God, you're the one who lifts my head. You, you encourage me. You, you lift up my head. But that's not all. There's another meaning of that, that metaphor. If you read Genesis chapter 40, you'll, you'll read about the time when Joseph was in prison, in Potiphar's prison. And you remember, he's there under false charges. And while he's there, Pharaoh throws the cupbearer in prison. And the cupbearer has a dream. And he brings it to Joseph. And Joseph says, the Lord will tell you the meaning of the dream. And then Joseph says this. In th your dream means this. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. So that's, a, that's the word he uses. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. Restore you to be his cupbearer. And that's what happened. Three days later, Pharaoh called and had the cupbearer brought out of prison and put back in his position. So when David says, Lord, you're the one who lifts up my head, he has that idea, Lord, you encourage me. You help me keep my chin up, but you're the one who can restore me to my position. You can put me back where I belong. You're the one who could do this. That's how he prays. That's how he calls on God. He rehearses and remembers what God is like. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you pray that way when you're surrounded by trouble? Do you call on the name of the Lord and rehearse what God is like? My sense is that for many of us, we just rehearse our troubles when we pray. 
right? We, we, call on the, we call on God and we just tell him again and again, Lord, this is really terrible. I, I hate this. this uh, and we go over it. And then a little bit later, Lord, this is still terrible. It's not gotten any better. And we rehearse our, tr- our troubles. David does that. That's how he starts verses one and two, but he doesn't stop there. He moves on to rehearsing what's true about God. In the midst of his troubles, he says, God, you are my shield. You're a shield all around me. That's what you're like. And you are the one who bestows glory on me. And you're the one who can lift up my head. He doesn't just rehearse his troubles. He rehearses what God is like. Did you notice verse 4 ends with the word Selah? Selah. So I want to give you a moment to do that. Another Selah moment. Let's do what David did. We've already kind of thought about times present or past where troubles surround us. Now I want you to have a moment to call on the name of the Lord. David will play for us. And as the music plays, call on the name of the Lord, but don't just rehearse your troubles. Remember what God is like to you in the midst of your troubles. Remember what the scriptures tell us he's like and tell him right now, say, God, you are this way. I'm I'm counting on the fact that this is what you're like. Tell him what what you're hanging on to. As the music plays, you talk to him. Call on the God who sustains you. Let's do that. in this quiet moment, we call on you and we remind ourselves and we rehearse before you that you are the shield around us. When we're ashamed, maybe even ashamed because of our own actions, maybe we've brought shame on our own lives, you are still the God who lifts our head, who gives us forgiveness. You're the great provider times when we feel stretched so thin. You're the healer of our hurts, physical and emotional. You're the God who guides us. You are the guide at times when we feel we've lost our way. And Lord, in this quiet moment, we don't just rehearse our problems. We rehearse what you're like for us in our problems, like David did. Thank you. Thanks for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as David does that, something changes. Like as he begins to rehearse what God is to him, something changes. But it doesn't change on the outside. His problems don't go away, but something changes on the inside for David. Suddenly he finds rest. He's able to sleep. And when he wakes up, he finds new courage and boldness. It comes out in verses 5 to 8, the last stanza of our song. Listen to it as I read. Verse 5, look what comes next. He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Wow, 
When you, put, when you read those last verses in that third stanza, you can put together the whole thought. You can get the message that David is trying to get across in his psalm. You see, what he's been saying is when troubles surround you, well, then what you need to do is call on the God who sustains you so that you can find rest. You can find rest by remembering that he has saved you. So you find rest. You call on the God who sustains you, and you find rest remembering that he has saved you. That's what happens to David. He finds rest. Do you see that verse 5? Look at it. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I lie down and sleep. The Hebrew text emphasizes the word I there. It's almost like David is saying, hey, I want you to get this. I was able to sleep. I mean, not just the people with me. I mean, I'm at the epicenter of this problem. And I, I was able to sleep. Sleep came to me. I laid down and slept. Now, you, you, you remember, David is not in the palace. You know, he's not sleeping on his sealy, posturepedic, pillow-top mattress that night, right? Doesn't have his nice little goose-down duvet tucked in uh, on all sides. Doesn't have some feather pillow under his head. He is on the run. He's probably sleeping on the ground. But he says, you know what? I laid down and I slept. He gets rest physically, but it's not just physical rest. There's a sense of emotional rest. Look at that in verse six. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. David says, it's not that I'm just sleeping physically. I'm resting internally. I'm not afraid. I'm not giving away to fear, even though there are tens of thousands drawn up on me against me on every side. By the way, he's not exaggerating there. If you read 2 Samuel, you'll find that Absalom does marshal an army in the tens of thousands. So David knows that as he's lying on that patch of ground outside of Jerusalem, he's going to have tens of thousands of people bent on killing him. And he says, but I'm not going to give way to fear. In fact, verse 7 shows that he gains this new confidence. Surprisingly, look at how he starts verse 7. He prays, but it's not a prayer of despair. It's a prayer of assurance and confidence and boldness. Verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. There's a play on words that comes in verse 7. See where it says, Arise, O Lord. Same word shows up in verse 1 where David says, How many, O Lord, are my foes? How many rise up against me? So verse 1 in his lament, he's saying, God, many people are rising up against me. Verse 7, he says, oh God, please arise for me. And then he says in verse 7, deliver me, oh my God. Why that word deliver showed up in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But now in verse 7, with confidence, David cries out, arise, oh Lord, deliver me, oh my God. So you say, okay, what made the shift? How can David, how can David have this newfound confidence? How could he come to this place of rest? Well, I think you get part of the answer at the end of verse 7. We've already seen that part of the rest came as he called on the God who sustained him. He rehearsed what God is like. But the rest of the answer, I think, comes at the end of verse 7. What gave him rest? What gave him peace? Look at the last part of verse 7. He says, strike all my enemies on the jaw Break the teeth of the wicked. Hmm. What's that about? 
Well, for one thing, I'm reading out of the NIV, the New International Version, and this may not be the best translation of the Hebrew text. The reason why is that the verbs used in the last part of verse 7 are usually translated as past tense verbs. Grammatically, there's some variance there, but they're usually translated in the past tense. In fact, if you have a King James Version or a New American Standard Version of the Bible, yours actually says, for you, O God, have struck my enemies on the jaw or on the cheek, and you have broken, past tense, you have broken the teeth of the wicked. And I think in the flow of the psalm, that's a, that's a good translation. I think David is remembering what God has done in his past. And it's giving him courage in his presence. He's saying, God, I know what you've done for me in the past. You have struck my enemies on the jaw or on the cheek. That, that seems to be a, a, an image of showing contempt or disdain. Job chapter 16, verse 10, Job says, my enemies have struck me on the cheek. Can you picture that? It's kind of like a slap on the cheek, an insult. It's like God has put them in their place. He struck the enemies on the cheek. But then he got more severe. You've broken the teeth of the wicked. There the picture is, God, you've you've defanged those who are coming to devour me. You've knocked out their teeth. You've made them harmless so they couldn't bite me and, and gobble me up. You've protected me. And David is remembering how God has done that. Maybe he's thinking back of the time when God delivered him from the mouth of the lion and the bear. Do you remember how when he was tending his father's sheep, he told King Saul, the Lord delivered me from the mouth of the lion and the bear that came to get my sheep. Maybe David's thinking about the time when God delivered him from that big mouth giant named Goliath. Remember Goliath taunting David, trash talking David? And David said, the Lord delivered me from the mouth of that big guy. And maybe, maybe David's thinking about how the Lord kept him from being devoured by a jealous King Saul who pursued him again and again. He said, Lord, you struck him on the jaw. You broke out his teeth. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't able to bite and devour me. Maybe David's thinking about all the times the Lord protected him from the Philistines and the Amalekites as he fought battles with them. And maybe... David is thinking how God had already delivered him in a significant way from his son, Absalom. See, there's a part of the story here that when you know the backstory, to me, it shines some beautiful light on this verse. Something happened on that first night when David fled the city. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 17. Here's what happened. Absalom came into the palace and he did some despicable things that kind of showed everyone he was now the new king. And then he gathered his advisory council and he asked them, what should we do about David, my father? He's fled the city. What should we do? And Ahithophel, remember that name? Ahithophel was David's advisor who had turned traitor and now was supporting Absalom. Ahithophel speaks up and says this, you should get 12,000 men right now and you should go straight after your father immediately. He's weak. He is weary. You can strike him down and take him out when he's vulnerable. But then a man named Hushai spoke up. Hushai, who was called Hushai the Archite. Hushai spoke up, and Hushai had different advice. Now, you need to know something about Hushai. When David had fled the city, Hushai had come with David. Hushai had also been one of his advisors, one of his counselors. And Hushai came to David and said, wherever you go, I go. I'm with you. And David had said this to Hushai. He said, 
I need you to do something for me. I want you to go back to the palace and I want you to pretend to be loyal to my son Absalom. You tell him, as I served your father, now I will serve you. And that way you can be my eyes and my ears and you can send word to me on what Absalom is doing. So Hushai had gone back to the palace and when Ahithophel says, we should go after David right now, 12,000 men, get him when he's weak, Hushai speaks up and says, normally the words of Ahithophel are wise and true, but this time, but this time he's mistaken. And then he looks at Absalom and he says, you know your father, he's a street fighter. He's like a she-bear robbed of her cubs. He is a dangerous man right now. And you know, he's not going to spend the night sleeping near his troops. He's going to be off somewhere else. So even if you attack his troops, you won't get him. And then if you do go and try to attack him and it doesn't go well, it's gonna, you're going to lose momentum. People will begin to say, God is not with you. So Hushai said this, Absalom, here's what I suggest you do. You muster all the troops of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, and you gather a mighty army, and then we will go and we will fall on David like the dew falls on the ground. Absalom heard that, and this is what the scripture tells us he said. I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. Now catch this. The writer adds this. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Do you get what's going on there? It says that God worked in this situation and he had, he moved in Absalom's heart. So Absalom said, you know, Ahithophel, that's normally your good advice, but we're going to go with what Hushai says. We're not going to attack him tonight. We're going to muster an army that's huge and we will fall on him like the dew falls on the ground. And it said the Lord intended to bring Absalom down and moved him not to accept the good advice of Ahithophel. In other words, Hushai was buying David time. Now, it's interesting, in our psalm, David says in verse 5, I lied down, slept, and I woke up again because the Lord sustains me. In other words, when David woke up that first morning after he fled the city, there was something inside of him that said, God is protecting me. Absalom didn't come. We're going to live to fight another day. And David saw that as an evidence that God had protected him again. So that's why he could say in verse 7, you strike or you have struck all my enemies on the jaw. You have broken their teeth. Now, let me tell you how that plays out for you and me. It's one of those nights when you can't sleep and you got a lot on your mind. You feel surrounded by trouble. So what do you do? Well, you do what David did. And you rehearse what's true about God, that he's the shield, that he's the one who gives glory, that he's the lifter of your head. And you start remembering the things the Bible tells you are true about him. They're true still when your problems are still surrounding you. It's still true about God. He's not changed. And you rehearse those. And then you remember. You remember all the times when he struck your enemies on the jaw and broke their teeth. All the times he delivered you again and again and again. And as you lie there, you say, God, I still feel surrounded, but you helped me then. And I remember when you delivered me then. And I remember when you saved me here. And like David, 
You allow that to start giving you rest. And then you're reminded with how he closes his psalm. You will come to the place where you can say, as verse 8 says, from the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. David is able to say, Lord, you are the deliverer. By the way, that word deliver is one of the repeated words in our psalm. It shows up three times. Verse 2, God will not deliver him. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, deliver me. And now in verse 8, from the Lord comes deliverance. That's a big word. David is saying, God, here's what I'm hanging on to. You are the one who delivers. By the way, that doesn't mean that David was passive and didn't take any action when he faced troubles. David was not a passive man. When the bear and the lion came after his sheep, he went after them. Uh, When Goliath taunted the armies of Israel, David went and he picked up, you remember, the five smooth stones. And then he went after that giant. When Absalom takes over the palace, David gets Hushai and says, I'm sending you back as a double agent. David takes action, but David knows something. In spite of whatever action you take, that's not what you count on. You count on the fact that God is the deliverer. Proverbs 21, 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. You get that? The horse is prepared for the day of battle. Like, you got to get ready, but you remember that victory rests with the Lord. And when you remember that victory rests with the Lord, you start finding rest for your soul and your body. Deliverance is from the Lord. But there's one final thing I want you to see that comes out of verse 8 about this idea of deliverance. That word, the Hebrew word translated deliverance, is actually a word you may be familiar with. The Hebrew verb that means deliver is the word yashag. But the noun form used here in verse 8 is the Hebrew word yashua. Does that ring any bells? Yashua. Why, Why, that's the word that gives us the Hebrew name Joshua. But more than that, that's the Hebrew word that gives us the name Yeshua or Jesus. Jesus' name was deliverance. In fact, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you shall give your son the name Jesus, for he shall save or deliver his people from their sins. So when David says, deliverance comes from the Lord, verse 8, from the Lord comes deliverance, in a way that perhaps he could only vaguely see, that was going to be literally fulfilled in David's greater son, Jesus. For Jesus would literally come to be deliverance from the Lord. He would be deliverance. He would be salvation in flesh and blood. And he would come to deliver us. In fact, it's fascinating. David left Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives weeping. Jesus would come into Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives to the shouts of people who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us, deliver us. And Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and he would bring deliverance but in a strange way. He brought deliverance by allowing himself to be delivered into the hands of wicked men. And they slapped him on the jaw in contempt. They struck him in the teeth. They beat him until he was red. And they made him carry a cross outside of the city gates where they crucified him. You say, well, how is that deliverance? Well, he died to deliver you. 
You see, the, the deepest troubles you will ever face are not any of the problems that come in this life through friends or family or work or health. None, as big as those are, those are not your deepest problems. The Bible says the area where you and I most need deliverance is in a problem we have that we cannot fix. It's that we have been traitors to God. We have joined like, like Absalom's friend. We have joined the wrong side. All of us, all of us have tried to be like little self-kings. We have coronated ourselves and been self-sovereigns. And essentially, the Bible says we've all gone our way and shaken our fist at God and said, we will not have this man to rule over us. And the Bible says because of our treason, every single one of us deserves to be killed, to be judged, to be condemned to hell. But God sent his son to be deliverance for us. And Jesus died so that he could take upon his body all of the punishment that should be coming your way and my way. So he died to deliver you. Because from the Lord comes deliverance. And get this, the deliverance comes to the people who don't deserve it. Did you notice how verse 8 ends? Look at the last line in verse 8. May your blessing be on your people. May your blessing be on your people. Think about that. That's an ironic way to end this psalm. David is being chased by his own people. It seems like the multitude of the nation is turned on him, right? They're with Absalom. They're out to kill him. There will be ten thousands of soldiers after him. And David is there praying, may your blessing be on your people. Is that what you'd be praying for your people if they turned on you? He could be calling curses down on them, but he doesn't. And in just a few days, Absalom would be dead, run through with a javelin, and David would be, have his head lifted up. He'd be restored as king. And when he became king again, you know what he did to all the people? He pardoned them. He gave them a blessing. Even those that deserve to be punished, he gave grace. And David's greater son does the same thing. You see, you don't deserve, you don't deserve to be delivered. And I don't deserve to be delivered. But God says, may his blessing be on his people. And when you become one of God's people, by trusting in Jesus, who saves us through his death, when you become one of his people, you get blessing when you should get cursing. And when you remember that, when you're lying on your bed at night and the problems of your life are huge and you start rehearsing how God has saved you. Oh, he saved you out of this scrape and out of this financial problem and out of this relational issue. But then you remember that he saved you from the very fires of hell. And you breathe a little easier and you think, I have a God who saves. And you know what starts to happen? Oh, it may not be on the first night. You may still battle sundown for a while. But in time, more of that starts to seep in your soul. And in time, you start to get rest. So when troubles surround you, call on the God who sustains you. And ask him to give you rest as you remember that he has saved you. Well, verse 8 ends with Selah. So we need to have one more Selah moment here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. and They're going to lead us in our final song. But before they do, why don't you just take a moment 
and kind of uh, breathe deep and find rest, remembering that he has saved you. And if you're here today and you have never yet bowed the knee to Jesus, you've never yet said, I'm done being my own little king. You've never acknowledged him as your sovereign and your savior. Then today during this quiet moment, you can do that. You can just say, Jesus, save me, forgive me, be my king, rule my life, give me hope, make me part of your people. And if you have done that, then why don't you just thank him for all the times he has saved you, how faithful he's been in your past, and let that give you rest. For more information on Heritage College and Seminary, visit the school's website at discoverheritage.ca. To stay connected with the Reeds, visit their website at rickandlindareed.com.